Hello, this is Technology Corner for the week of November 19th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week we have no meowing cat. Pity the poor employer. Employers don't have it easy these days. If they fail to keep a close watch on what employees are doing, they can get into trouble. Yet if they watch too closely... They can also get into trouble. Jeffrey Stanton, an associate professor in the School of Information Studies at Syracuse University, has written a book called The Visible Employee. The book is primarily for business owners, managers, and IT staff who are interested in learning how to effectively and ethically monitor and influence workplace behavior. And that makes it sound like it's a book that is intended for large corporations. Well, that's true. But it's also useful if you run just a small company with two or three employees. The book's recommendations provide a wide range of security solutions. So I called Jeffrey Stanton and asked him to define, first of all, what he means by workplace surveillance. Workplace surveillance includes any of a variety of techniques that employers use in order to find out uh, about um, behavior and activities on their premises. Um, now, certain of these uh, types of techniques are uh, aimed specifically at employees, while others are more general. For instance, um, video cameras in the lobby and the parking lots are meant to uh, make records of behavior, not of ju- just of employees, but also of visitors and guests and uh, you know any kind of criminal activity that might take place in those public arenas. When I'm talking about surveillance uh, and monitoring in the context of this book, I'm more focused on um, the types of techniques that employers use to watch what employees do with their computers. Um, and so that mainly uh, involves the web, web visits uh, to various sites. Um, it involves email, either looking at the sender and recipient addresses or also looking inside the emails, trying to scan the content of them. Um, and it involves other types of uh, uh, communication techniques, such as instant messaging, where um, employees may be uh, sending data uh, uh, to and from the, the organization uh, for, for business and non-business purposes. A company could conceivably get into trouble by making an error, either of commission or omission, when it comes to monitoring employees. So let's talk a bit about the kinds of problems a company can face if it fails to monitor employees properly. And on the other side, what happens if a company engages in inappropriate surveillance? There are many instances where uh, companies are obliged to to, to um, monitor employees for legal and regulatory purposes. So a common example of this would be in the in the financial industry, certain types of jobs involve uh, communicating uh, investment uh, information to customers, and and those uh, calls must be uh, carefully recorded, as as must be any any other kinds of communication uh, that occurs, such as text of emails and so forth. So th- there are there are many um, uh, situations where an employer uh, is really obliged to make records of what em- employees are doing um, in order that they don't get into trouble later on. Um, there's there's also some gray areas here because um, there's been an increase over uh, 
past decades of uh, lawsuits made against employers for what's called hostile workplace. And, th- and this, the typical situation here is that um, uh, jokes or images of a sexual nature are, are uh, broadcast uh, by an employee or sent by an employee to another colleague. Um, and, and these uh, images or, inform- or, or uh, messages create a hostile environment for another worker, often a female worker. Um, in those cases, an employer also, an employer who has kept records of, of uh, exactly what has happened is going to be on a better legal footing than, than one that uh, has, has not done so. So on the flip side of the coin, the, the danger of too much monitoring and surveillance and keeping, keeping records of everything that employees do is that employees may feel that their privacy has been violated um, and if the uh, at resulting atmosphere uh, and job satisfaction are poor enough, they'll pull up stakes and go elsewhere. And, and of course, that's very costly um, if you're you're making your employees angry and they're taking jobs somewhere else. Unfortunately, in in the U.S., there are not many uh, legal protections of employee privacy. So. Um, the obligation that employers have to not do too much monitoring is more of a moral obligation than it is a legal obligation in the U.S. Recently, a person working at the Los Alamos nuclear facility took home hundreds of classified documents on key drives, the little drives about the size of a finger, well, maybe about the size of a thumb, since they're called thumb drives. Uh, She said she was going to just work on them at home. Police were called to the woman's trailer on some other matter, and in the process of investigating that, found the drives. I have several of the devices myself. I love them because they allow me the convenience to take things home, bring them back, but certainly I understand that to a company they could be a huge security issue. The uh, folks at Los Alamos seem to have come up with what they think is a solution to the problem, They have disabled the USB ports on the machines, or in some cases they have simply glued the ports shut. That is a a very tricky issue um, because uh, thumb drives, of course, are just one example of uh, the many different ways in which employees um, uh, make their work lives more mobile. And, uh, you know, something as innocent as your cell phone um, may contain uh, very important critical information such as, you know, customer lists. So um, this, this is a problem that, that is, is plaguing uh, employers everywhere. The, the solution to it is, is uh, not at all easy because there's no single, there's no silver bullet for, uh, of technology that's, that's going to do the trick here. Um, anything you think of for for cutting off access um, will uh, the, an, uh, an inventive employee will think of a way around that. For instance, gluing the USB um, uh, port shut um, will work until such time as there's a, a you know Bluetooth enabled laptop and a Bluetooth device um, nearby that can communicate with each other wirelessly, and uh, that that will itself be another hole that has to be plugged and and. Uh, the uh, the possibility of using technology to cut off all of these holes um, is you know it's 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 virtually impossible to do so you need a mixture of technology um, policy training and enforcement in order to make sure that uh, um, people are not tempted to to um, to to do 
things that might uh, put the company at risk. And that's that's really hard to do. That's a hard combination to get right. Another big security problem we've seen is the ubiquitous notebook computer. Uh, for example, the Veterans Administration, a person working there took the notebook computer home. It was stolen. Now, it used to be when you took a file home, you took a file home. It was in a manila folder, and you could take maybe one or a few files home at a time. But now with a notebook computer, you can take home tens or hundreds, thousands, in some cases millions of files sitting on your notebook computer in your home. Short of turning our offices and our homes into prisons, what can we do to mitigate the dangers of taking data out of the office? Interesting thing about this that's, that's ironic in a way is that employers um, worldwide are, are making more and more demands on employees that, that erase the boundaries between work life and home life. Um, it's it's hard to get ahead right now as as a middle manager unless you're willing to take some work home with you. Um, the days when you know there was a clear demarcation between what you did at work and what you did at home are, are largely gone in, in many professions. So at the same time as employers are saying, well, look, you're not getting enough done while you're at work, so I insist that you be available by email and have some work to take home with you and be able to log into our servers at night. Um, those same employers are. Uh, terribly concerned about the security risks involved in, in making these mobile resources available to to employees. So there's there's a real push and pull here and there's no there's no obvious way to get both the higher productivity that's being demanded of employees and the higher security which would um, engender, you know, keeping all your information resources behind locked doors. We spoke earlier about monitoring email. Many people and I'm one of them believe that email is one of the most serious security threats a business faces, if not the most serious security problem that a business faces. Email can carry viruses, it can carry worms, these things come in as attachments. It can also be used for social engineering. Of course, we've got firewalls and antivirus applications that help, but they're not foolproof, and in fact, sometimes I think that those kinds of things simply develop more powerful and inventive fools. So are there any actions that an individual can take to decrease the chance of being victimized, things they can do perhaps in addition to or instead of things that their company might be doing? One of the issues actually connects with uh, what we were discussing before, um, accessing uh, the um the uh, company's um, resources from home um, is often accomplished by an employee with their own computer, and this is a this is a major source of, of problems because your your computer that you use at work may have been carefully locked down by an IT person, and that that IT person has has hopefully you know really paid attention to um, the the key aspects of security that that are, are needed to to make a system secure. Your computer at home, though, um, depending upon the amount of uh, IT expertise that you have, uh, may be as full of holes as Swiss cheese. And uh, for all you know, you may have a, 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 a backdoor program installed on there, um, which would allow your computer to be recruited into a, what they call a botnet, um, which are used in denial-of-service attacks. Um, and and the, 
the uh, status of security of the typical home computer in in uh, the U.S. is not nearly as good as the status of security in you know a typical uh, kind of corporate environment. So that opens up a, a host of of problems for um, for uh, uh, the the corporation because as soon as you connect your home computer to some valuable information resource within the organization through a remote server, um, you you have uh, um, raise the possibility that something bad on your system will get access to something important on their system. So, so the, uh, the, the, the solution to this is, is uh, to either educate yourself about um, key kinds of protections that should be included on, on a home computer, or better yet, um, if your company really wants you to do work at home, they should provide a, a, a locked-down system to you uh, that you can transport to home, whether that's a, a laptop or a smartphone or, or whatever kind of device they think that you'll need, but, but a, one that's administered by your corporate IT people rather than sort of uh, willy-nilly slapped together at home. So what it comes down to then is that the company has to take responsibility for its own security, whether it's security within the corporate building or security of employees who may be working elsewhere. Absolutely, because no one else will do it for them, and th- and that extends beyond the technology, of course, uh, to the, to the training. You know, one of the one of the major things that, that we discuss uh, in in my book, the the visible employee, is that you, you know you really have to invest in your employees if you want them to to be on the same side as you are uh, with with respect to security. Security is is not easy, and and most uh, corporations are are you know they they um, are more interested in productivity um, than they are in security. If you judge by the behavior of how how managers um, uh, work with employees, so if you want to change that around and make security as high a priority as as productivity, as indeed it it must be in some environments, um, then you really got to invest in that. They need to have the training and motivation uh, in order to protect resources as much as use them. Jeffrey Stanton, Associate Professor, the School of Information Studies, Syracuse University. His book, The Visible Employee. If you'd like to learn more about the book, you can visit his website, and there's a link to that website from my website. That's www.techbiter.com. The Blue Screen of Death. Almost always unwelcome. Now, I said almost because now there are times when you might actually look forward to seeing it. But first, a little bit of background. Mark Rosinovich has provided Windows utilities for several years. His utilities are exceptionally robust utilities. He's written, for example, the Rootkit Revealer. Well, recently, Microsoft acquired SysInternals, and along with the company, they got Mark Rosinovich. So all of the utilities that used to be on the SysInternals website are now on Microsoft's website. And that includes a blue screen of death screensaver. Blue is about as scary to Windows users as it is to George Bush. The blue screen of death pops up when something has gone seriously wrong. The blue screen of death screensaver authentically mimics a true blue screen of death. It also simulates startup screens that are seen during the system boot. So you get the blue screen of death. The system looks like it's trying to restart. You get another blue screen of death, and the process continues. 
Now, what's interesting about this is the blue screen of death actually grabs information from your computer, so it looks realistic. Even techies are sometimes fooled by this. It even makes me a little nervous, and I know it's there. There's a link to the Blue Screen of Death screensaver on the Technology Corner website. In nerdly news, have you noticed an increase in spam, perhaps? Well, if you haven't, you're not alone, and if you haven't noticed it, wow, you must be lucky. There's an awful lot of stuff that seems to involve pump-and-dump stock schemes, but there's also the usual mix of porn, penis enlargement, and stolen software stuff. Messages are being spewed by the tens of thousands of hijacked computers. You might wonder, is yours one of them? A lot of people think that these things come from overseas, and to some extent they do. The Russian mafia is involved in a lot of the work behind the scenes, but most of the machines involved are in the U.S., Security experts say that 70,000 or more computers are part of one peer-to-peer botnet that's being run by organized crime in Russia. It's sophisticated. The Trojan that spreads the crap has its own antivirus scanner. They use a pirated copy of Kaspersky's security software to eliminate other malware. Clever. According to eWeek magazine, the bots are segmented into several server ports determined by the variant of the Trojan that's been installed and further segmented into peer groups of no more than 512 bots. The criminals who are running the enterprise do this because it allows them to keep the overhead down. And they're not talking here about overhead in terms of costs, but it's overhead in terms of machine usage. The more machines you have, the more overhead. More than half of these 70,000 machines, and this is just one botnet, are in the U.S. Most of the infected machines are Windows XP systems, with Service Pack 2 installed. A lot of people are seeing these messages for the first time. That's because criminals have grabbed email addresses from computers that they commandeer by looking through address books. That gives them access to millions of addresses that have never been victimized previously. Most of the messages include enough random text to fool anti-spam filters, and the pump-and-dump stock schemes recently have begun presenting their messages as a graphic. The subject line changes from week to week. The botnet that eWeek described controls, as I said, some 73,000 infected clients capable of sending a billion spams per day. Because most of the spams have multiple recipients, the actual number of messages sent is several times that. That's why something like 80% of email traffic is spam. Barracuda networks, which unfortunately seem to allow many of these messages to slip right through, says that it has seen a 67% increase in spam and a 500% in those image-based spams just since August. By the way, I still haven't signed up for Spam Arrest. That's the service I described last week. Last Friday, power problems in Seattle made the Spam Arrest system unavailable for several hours, and the service was then unreliable for most of the day. Still, the best protection against spam seems to be some combination of server-based applications that analyze messages, such as Spam Assassin, and a service such as Spam Arrest that quarantines messages from unknown senders. If you are in China, which you probably aren't if you're listening to this program, but you might be, if you are in China, Wikipedia is once again available. In the U.S., the argument over Wikipedia is whether a user-written encyclopedia can be accurate. In China, the argument seems to be over whether people should be allowed to read a user-written encyclopedia. This brings to mind the Great Soviet Encyclopedia, 
That was the Soviet Union's national reference work until the fall of communism. Replacement pages were frequently sent out to correct previously written articles, and the earlier articles were cut out of the books and discarded. Thus, history was rewritten. Well, the Chinese government recently allowed citizens to view the English-language version of Wikipedia. Now it's decided to allow the Chinese-language version to be viewed also. The way Wikipedia works is anyone can write an article and anyone can edit an article. Wikipedia is run by a non-profit foundation, and that organization, unlike Yahoo and Google, has refused to bow to Beijing's demand to censor material. Chinese authorities made no announcement about changes in their censorship policies, and they continue to say that the Internet is open and uncensored in China, which, of course, is incorrect. Despite making Wikipedia available, the government continues to use keyword filters to block topics, topics such as Tiananmen Square, Falun Gong, and the Communist Revolution of the 1940s. Wikipedia kind of comes and goes in China. The Chinese version was available in 2005, but only briefly. So the lesson here, perhaps, is beware totalitarian governments, including those operating in democratic countries. By the way, no show next week. Happy Thanksgiving in advance, and thanks for listening. This has been Technology Corner for the week of November 19th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. You can send me an email from there, too. Let me know what you think. Thanks. Bye-bye.